Before we get started, we'd like to warn you there is explicit language and adult themes in this podcast, so it would be a good idea if the kids weren't around when you listen. It's not us. We didn't write the script, but consider yourself warned. On with the show. I'm going to make him an offer, Cameron. I feel the need, the need for speed. He's watched every movie more than once. He's Stephen Fennec. Go ahead. Make my day. He's watched the latest Disney movies with his kids, uh, but that's about it. He's Trevor Long. You talking to me? Together, they bring you the best movies you've never seen. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Rent BioStream, the latest and greatest movies on Fetch. Watch on a big screen Hisense TV. The best movies you've never seen. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. With Stephen Fennick and Trevor Long. This is the captain. Brace for impact. Hello and welcome everybody to The Best Movies You've Never Seen and I'm Stephen Fennick and I'm joined by my good mate Trevor Long who all these great movies that we watch, somehow they got past uh, they got past Trevor over the years but this is the podcast that is introducing him to these fantastic movies. Welcome Trev. Mate, these movies all went through to the keeper like a good Aussie ball at the ashes, mate, just caught... Yes, yes, Done. good analogy, good analogy, very current. <laughs> very current. If, <laughs> if you're listening to this in 2023, yeah, never mind. You're, yeah, you're thinking, what the hell are they talking about, these blokes? <laughs> well, what we are talking about is A Few Good Men. This is a great film. It came out in 1992, starring Tom Cruise and directed by Rob Reiner and Jack Nicholson. It's got all the ingredients. And it's one of those movies that, Again, once you're in this movie, if it's on TV, if it's on wherever you happen to catch it, I think it's impossible to tear yourself away. Agreed. I mean, this is one that you've got to know. Um, there's no doubt I knew about this movie. <laughs> this is uh, this is a movie you can't not know about, essentially. There's lines in this you absolutely have to know, and I think we'll find this is going to be a very um, audio-heavy show because there's just so many, so much great delivery and great lines. Quite the whole movie, yeah. It's, it's brilliant. And well, look, we'd just like to thank too our, our uh, some some great listeners who've left us some some great reviews. We do encourage you to leave us a five star rating and and to subscribe to the show, of course, so that way you get the fresh episodes as they appear. That's right. Every Friday, the show drops in your podcast feed. But yeah, some great ratings. I mean, it's probably been a while since we've read any, so there's many, many more. But just recently, um, Stony said uh, any podcast these two put out. Uh, it's going to be good. This podcast is no exception to that rule. Uh, great work. Keep up the good work, um, uh, Giovanni. So it gets me wanting to watch these movies again, and that's exactly what we want, Giovanni. I love the chemistry between Stephen and Trevor, especially love Stephen's passion and keen eye and insight into all the movies they review. Some of the movies I've never seen, 
It's some of my favorites. No matter after listening to the podcast, it makes me want to watch the movies. Great work, guys. Keep up the work. Many great reviews. We really appreciate that because it makes us feel feel good about what we're doing and, and reinforces the, the fun that we're having on the show. Absolutely right. Yeah, this is uh, we love doing. We love putting this uh, this podcast together, and it's it's something that I'm obviously passionate about. You know that about me. But slowly, we're getting Trevor on board. <laughs> Trevor's on board with these movies, and it's really good that he's actually getting this movie experience. It's awesome. Well, anyway, let's talk about the movie A Few Good Men. It was released in 1992, and it was written by Aaron Sorkin, who originally wrote it as a play. I it's noticed that in the title. Yes. Because the first thing that struck me, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the actors and stuff, but I first noticed I, I recognised the, the director, and then I saw written, by, it actually said written screenplay by Aaron Sorkin based on his the play. His play. That's correct. And I'm like, wow. I actually went, how do you make a play about this? But anyway, um, it just it goes to show, as you always say, he's a genius. Uh, absolutely right. Uh, he he wrote, so from, from his play, wrote it from the screen, directed by Rob Reiner, Starring mm. Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Jack Nicholson. So what 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 fantastic ingredients you've got right there off the bat. The original play, and we'll get into this later in the things you didn't know, was actually inspired by actual events at Guantanamo Bay. Right. We'll get into that a bit later. But Rob Reiner spotted Sorkin. He, he knew he was a talent and worked with him then to adapt the play to the screen. And Rob Reiner, he had, before this movie, directed Stand By Me, which we're doing on this show, yep. When Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm. and Misery. So before A Few Good Men, he was coming in hot. He, he had some pretty right. good movies under his belt already. But so your first impressions here, so you had had seen this, knew of this. What's the story, Trevor? My, my thought was, and again, I have to apologize, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but I've just got a bad memory, right? So I know I've seen it, but I don't believe I've sat and watched it. Do you know the difference between it being like a TV movie and you kind of in and out of it? Or for us, we travel a lot, a plane movie, which you might fall asleep to or whatever. Um, I I just don't believe I'd sat and watched it like that, like I have um, in in the last week. So I I don't think I'd fully seen it. I certainly knew the famous lines. I certainly could have named actors in it. That's an important thing for me. And again, going to our disparity of knowledge, you know, Stephen could recognize a, a D-list a- actor on the street. I wouldn't struggle to recognize an A-lister, but I was spotting, you know, actors, I knew actors in this. Yeah, um, a lot of, so lot of uh, other cast members. thing was going into this, I didn't know the the, the core storyline. I, I couldn't, I couldn't have plotted the path of the story. So I was quite looking forward to sitting down and actually taking in the movie for the first time. Right. Well, the original play, A Few Good Men, opened at the Music Box Theatre on November the 15th, 1989. Right. Ran for 497 performances. So and so the movie came out in 92, so not long after, a couple of years after. Now, Aaron Sorkin at the time, right, w- had just graduated college, was oh. a bartender in uh, on Broadway. So he was... Hang on, so is this like his early work? It's his first play that he ever wrote. Are you kidding me? First play out of college. Oh, so he was working, though, as a bartender uh, on Broadway. So he wrote the entire play on cocktail napkins during Act One of La Cage aux Folles. That's a very famous uh, French comedy comedy farce on, on Broadway. So he, because he's a bartender, he's busy, he's busy at the start of the night. Yep. Everyone watches Act One. He's busily writing on the cocktail napkins. Mm-hmm. Intermission, they're all out again, and he's serving them drinks 
Then they're and in so again. Just to be clear, yeah. what you mean by that is it's not right, right in line by line. He's writing. It's like the storyboarding, I guess. He would have gone, I want it to do this. I want it to do that so that he could take those napkins home and, and lot, plot it out and then go, right, I'm into it with the typewriter or the That's computer. Right. Yeah. So, wow. and what, what ended up happening after he, after it was the play and then it was adapted for the screen, when it, when the script was being prepared to be filmed, he'd actually, obviously the script and play are slightly different in parts. Mm-hmm. He found that the script, the film script worked better in parts and then went back and changed the play. Wow. So if, you, if you come late into the play, you're seeing more of the movie version of the movie. The adapt- you're seeing an yeah. adaptation of a movie. Yeah. Which so was, was actually like, the original yeah. Wow, yeah. So that's, it's, it's exactly. Uh, and it, this this was uh, the reaction, sort of the buzz around this movie, obviously massive cast, a lot of expectations. It was nominated for four Oscars. Didn't win any, unfortunately. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. Didn't win anything, unfortunately. But uh, it was the only Best Picture Oscar nominee that year that wasn't nominated in either of the lead acting categories. So oh, best wow. actor, best actress, no, Tom Cruise missed out. Best actress would have been Demi Moore. So I don't think her role was probably big enough to, or for a best actress, but Jack was nominated. Uh, and I'll, there's, I'll share a story of the, the one of the actors who was actually considered for Jack Nicholson's role and that, oh, and the Oscars as well a bit later on. Can I, can but, I ask uh, you about the timing? Um, because I was thinking about this, you know, Guantanamo Bay has a different history now. I think most people would associate that with like the, the war on terror kind of, you know, that's where they took people and that, that kind of stuff, right? But you need to put yourself in the headspace of this is way before that. But it was, um, so this was around like Desert Storm. This is like 91. That, well, that was when, you know, the Kuwait and all that was going on. So I assume it's not at all linked to that because this is all about the Cuba drama and that kind of, that's why Guantanamo Bay existed. So it's kind of a weird thing for me to detach myself from my, my actual knowledge of Guantanamo Bay was when that first scene opened up and they, you know, it said Guantanamo Bay. I went, Oh wow. And then I realized it had nothing to do with my knowledge of Guantanamo Bay, which is kind of a fascinating thing to watch watch it in modern times. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The the Marine barracks. uh, And I think, I think the events that we're talking about that it was loosely based on happened in the, in the early to mid eighties. So it wasn't, Mm -hmm. wasn't too far. And, and Aaron Sorkin actually had a, Let's just say a family connection to that uh, the base, which I'll discuss. I was say, he's just well. bloody graduated. Yeah. How's he got this yeah. knowledge? Well, I'll tell you. You hold that thought, mate. No, no. We're about to dive into the movie, though. And if you haven't seen a few good men, this is your last exit before the freeway. We're gonna we're gonna pretty much spoil the whole movie if you haven't watched it before. So uh, we recommend if you haven't seen it before, maybe catch it on Fetch. And Fetch are great sponsors of the best movies you've never seen because it's the best place to watch movies. Uh, thousands and thousands of movies available to rent or buy every single day, ready for you to watch. Uh, all you got to do is search up the movie you want to find, and it will tell you actually whether you need to rent or buy it or whether it's available on one of the streaming services you've got. And the great thing is that once you choose to rent or buy, in my case, I went, I'm going to buy this because this is a movie I do want in my library. I actually went through this thinking, is this one I could watch with Jacko? You know, he's, he's turning 15. It certainly for me wasn't in any way, um, not kid friendly broadly. So I, I definitely want to rewatch this again. So that's now going to sit in my library. So in the fetch, uh, I can simply go to my library, my movies, and that's a movie that I now own in, in the fetch library, simple to use, easy to use and all at the click of a button or the spoken word of your voice on your fetch. If you haven't got fetch, ask your internet provider if they provide fetch on a monthly subscription or 
Check it out at your leading retailers. All right. If you're still with us, we're going to dive in. We're going to salute. We're going to, well, I'm trying to think of another. Well, welcome back. Another, having just rewatched it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe that was a long, really, a two hour pause. Maybe we've just come <laughs> up with. So, okay, Trev, you've seen it now. You've seen it. And this time, let's just be clear you paid attention this time. All right. Yeah. You watched it. You paid attention. So, what what are you? What different impressions do you have? And how's this going to end up in a tweet? You reckon? Um, well, this one, this one, I'll sum it up in a tweet first. I've I've said you've seen it, but how well did you watch it? A few good men stands the test of time. Day after day, a cast that would be the envy of any director. You know you can handle it. Obviously, you need to incorporate some sort of words like that, <laughs> mate. I tweet would just say you can't handle the truth. That's my <laughs> truth. I. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Um, and we'll get into the scenes and the actors and stuff. But, man, I was just blown away. Actually, in my, my notes, I'm like, oh, my God, Cuba Gooding Jr. I'm, it was just <laughs> the other the, my, the annoying thing about my ability to recognize people is I don't know their names, but I'm like, oh, there's the dude from there. There's, there's, that, there's, that, guy. there's that guy. It was, <laughs> it was wall-to-wall superstars. And it, 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 it didn't have any moments of, of kind of boredom or down. It was, it was such a great flow. And the storyline was very well laid out because clearly they could have essentially spoiled parts of it, but they they pushed it out a bit like, you know, it really made you watch. I mate, I absolutely yes. loved it. And I can see why you would rewatch this over and over oh, again. It is one of those movies that, like I said, you, you get caught in the in the in the tractor beam of this one. Once you're in it, I don't think it's very hard to pull out. I saw it in the cinema uh, back back in the day and mm-hmm. have naturally watched it several times. And it was, was the first time I'd actually been exposed, of course, to Aaron's, well, first time for everyone, that we were exposed to Aaron Sorkin's work. And he's now gone on to become just a legendary writer, creator of The West Wing and Sports Night. And he's been now a, he's, a, he's now a director. He directed, he wrote the social screenplay for The Social Network, which we've covered, and uh, The Newsroom and so many things. And, and I'm on record as saying that I watch anything he writes, and I'm on record as saying that I would pay to read his shopping list. That's how good a writer he is. <laughs> you have He's said that before. Genius. Yeah. He is a genius. So let's move on, though, to the cast, mate, the casting call. I don't know, mate. Wait, this show, your show can't go on forever. I don't know how you're going to get through this because this was literally – a lot of cast. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of good – yeah, it is. And, and he, he, well, let's go through them. First of all, of course, Tom Cruise, who plays Daniel Caffey. He's yep. coming off the back of Top Gun, Colour of Money. And risky uh, business, right, which, we, okay. which we went, we went, we've, uh, we uh, have have covered on the show. Risky business. When he got the role, he went to see the play. He he went sat uh, down and wanted to really get into it. He's he's pretty method like that. Tom Cruise was reports of him sort of staying on the set for hours after his call had 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 finished, so he could really perfect the role. Demi Moore plays Joe Galloway, and uh, she is coming off Ghost. With uh, oh, Patrick Swayze, wow. great movie about last night and St. Elmo's Fire. So she was kind of a part of the brat pack coming out of that, and then she was showing her maturity as an actress. Who this was a, a major role for her as well. Of course, the great man Jack Nicholson plays Colonel Nathan a- Jessup. Now, have a look at his have a look at his resume before he <laughs> he came to a few good men. He was the Joker in Batman. He was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest which we're covering in a few weeks. And it was also in The Shining. So he's uh, – and then, obviously, he goes on to perform in uh, other great films as well. But you did mention, though, the supporting cast. Oh, and there's a lot of people in this. Kevin Pollock plays uh, Weinberg, the third person in their, in their little legal team. But then you've got Kevin Bacon, 
Yeah. He plays Jack Ross, so that he's the government. He's the government uh, prosecutor. Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland, <laughs> who plays uh, Kendrick. J.T. Walsh. Now that actor who plays Markinson, mm. he was in a lot of great movies. He's a great yeah. actor, J.T. Mark, J.T. Walsh. Um, Cuba Gooding Jr., who you noticed. Yep. There's also Noah Wiley. Remember the dude out of ER? He was in there. He was one of the guys, the Marines testifying. He was. Um. He was the guy that picked that picked them up and and told them to wear yes. the camo. Yes, he was. Who's the actor that walked into? Um, he was like Jessup's assistant. Walked in. He's the guy from uh, the West Wing. Joshua Molina. Yeah. Oh, dude. He was the only guy. Five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, that was his very first film. Oh, really? He was the only person who was in both the play and the movie. Oh, wow. He was in the play as well. Josh Molina. He was a role in the play. Uh, No, he plays the same role, apparently, some really small role, but he was good mates with Aaron Sorkin, and you'll notice he appears in a lot of Sorkin's stuff, including Sports Night, West Wing. So he's he's been associated with Aaron Sorkin over the years. Now, we're going to get into the memorable scenes, but you know what? Nothing makes it more memorable than having a great experience, and that experience can come to you with a Hisense TV. Hisense are our other great sponsor of the best movies you've never seen. They've got a fantastic range of TVs in all sizes. We encourage you to go big, though. 85-inch TVs are a lot more common than you expect. It's one of the fastest-growing TV sizes in Australia, and Hisense has got you covered. Whether you want a 4K TV, an 8K TV, they've got Quantum Dot QLED technology that makes the picture look fantastic. And it's all about experiencing these movies on a great scale, and that's exactly what you get using a watching it on a Hisense TV. So these are the best movies you've never seen. But on a high sense TVs, they're going to be even better. So check them out if you want to see their entire range. Head over to highsense.com.au. Righto. Are you got? Have you got your seatbelt on, mate? Let's What's strap me and get into this. I've got my dress whites on. <laughs> I've got. A, there's a good line about that later. So hold that thought. <laughs> now we're going to. I have to say, Stephen. I don't think I've ever been so excited about talking about a movie. <laughs> there you go. This is awesome. That's great. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm really happy to hear that. You're finally getting into the swing of this, mate. Love it. Love it. Okay. First, we meet Joe Galloway first. She sort of uh, finds out about, she sort of wants, wants to be the investigator on the case. Mm. And she has that little meeting with uh, with her superior, I guess. And yep. and we find out that uh, she's sort of trying to rehearse her little line, I want to be the one who's assigned. She gets into the meeting and they basically tell her to go get a cup of coffee so they can talk about it behind her back. They really did talk down to her there, didn't they? It was like... Uh, you know, yeah, because well, I love the bit where she realizes it's it's also a really important moment where you realize the authority um, ladder in in the military, right? Because she says he says have a seat. She goes, no, I'm fine. And he he's like, sit, sit he's down. Like, well, yeah. Okay, yeah. And then like he he when when she she he leaves, she's told to leave the room. Uh, we do with we, we we find out about you know the code red and and the she says oh we think it might be a code you know whether it might be a code red. Yeah. And the guy says, "Oh God, is that crap still going on down there?" And they they discuss about. They also talk about her, so you get a bit of background about Joe, how she's a good investigator, yes. not really cut out for litigation, but right. she's. They, I think they mentioned she's prosecuted three cases in a year or something. So she's really slow and fastidious, and not really. It took, it took me a moment to realize were they having a go at her for being slow or fast, and then it was it was obvious it was she was, she takes too long. She drags things out. She's too thorough, basically. Yeah. But it was well, interesting and, the code red thing. You know, obviously standing there, you're thinking, "What the heck's a code red?" But 
my mind initially went to, you know, uh, media reports here of like hazing and stuff in the military. And, and you realize that those same stories exist, right? The hazing and that's got to be stamped out and all that kind of stuff. So that's where my mind went was, all oh, right. So we're in that kind of boys club style um, behavior. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to think about it, actually. So we, we find out that, you know what, they're going to assign someone through uh, from division. So that means obviously someone, someone who's a bit more skilled at yeah. litigation. And this is when we first meet Daniel Caffey, which is Tom Cruise's character. And they're in a meeting and they, they throw over the file. He's given the assignment and his mate, uh, his mate uh, Weinberg was asked to assist really reluctantly. reluctantly. <laughs> but um, they do find out that they're going to have to go down to Cuba soon to sort of do some more investigating. And then they're also told to go see Joe Galloway. And their first meeting was really interesting. Have I done something wrong? No. It's just that when I petitioned division to have counsel assigned, I was hoping I would be taken seriously. No offense taken, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Commander Lieutenant Caffey is generally considered the best litigator in our office. He's successfully plea bargained 44 cases in nine months. One more, I get a set of steak knives. Have you ever been in a courtroom? I once had my driver's license suspended. Danny. Commander, from what I understand, if this thing goes to court, they won't need a lawyer. They'll need a priest. No, they'll need a lawyer. So we find out that he's a, he's a pretty slick negotiator. What's that? 44 cases in nine months. We also so find out he's a smart ass. Exactly. Yeah. So that, I reckon that was really good. It sort of set him up as being, uh, you know, that we hear that he's talented, but we see him, he's eating an apple. He's not really respectful of the rank member. He gets up, he goes, oh, you haven't yeah. been dismissed. So he's a little bit of a misfit already. We no, see. I, I, this yeah. is becoming my favourite part of analysing movies is understanding that it's really important to – place in the mind of a viewer um a personality you know and so you get this sense that you know tom cruise is you know a bit of a smarmy smart ass um know-it-all kind of thing was what you're, you're presented with by this point you know and i think that plays out a little bit in the right way it's what um, joe galloway's thinking so from her eyes sort of the audience yes. knows okay look what she thinks you'll you know she said in that quote you i thought i was going to be taken seriously so that's a bit of a slap in the face for him but yeah. she says look you'll need to go deeper she talks about santiago writing several letters to get off the base and mentions dawson's fence line shooting which we find out a little bit more about a little bit later but it basically sets us off on a path where okay this case may be more serious than we think have where have they got the right guy to lead the investigation. Yeah, which but is we, a thing throughout uh, yeah. the whole thing, right? It's it's also a really uh, cunning part of the, the screenplay or the, or the, or the storyline is just to cast that doubt on him and her throughout moments of the movie. You know, are they doing this right? Is is she doing it right? It's it's really well done, that that kind of Yeah, it's uh, the whole thing. Character. And, and like Sorkin's such a good writer and, and storyteller that it's it's all about the – he always talks about there being, you know, goals and obstacles, goals and obstacles in a screenplay where they're trying to achieve something but there's all these obstacles in their way. That's the, That's a movie. That's sort of the conflict and all that. And he does set that up through the movie quite well. Next thing, we meet Colonel Nathan Jessup for the very first time, and they they were asking about, uh, well, he was asking about this this young guy who uh, about the Santiago situation. Maybe we as officers have a responsibility to this country to see that the men and women charged with its security are trained professionals. Yes, I'm certain that I read that somewhere once, and now I'm thinking, Colonel Morganson. That your suggestion of transferring Santiago, while expeditious and certainly painless, might not be 
in a manner of speaking the American way. Santiago stays where he is. We're going to train the lad. So we, we, we discover there sort of the whole, remember the very first part of that, that scene is going to be one of our quotes later on. And, where, and, and you hear he, I think uh, that was when Santiago narrates his letter about wanting to get off the base. Yeah. And that sort of transitions into that little scene where, you know, is he safe on the base? Do we let yeah. him go? No, we're going to train can, him. It sets uh, Jessup up as, um, you know, very strong um, leader, but also very old school, like in his methodology. You've got this conflict between these two guys that are of similar age. You find that out in that moment. They graduated together and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Jessup just simply moved up the up the career path faster. But he... Um, He's just he's just more more army more military than than the other guy you know like it's this it's this very strong willed approach and you actually I actually come out of it going well it's not actually a bad solution because why like he he says something like you, you get rid of him and he's he's going to kill someone else somewhere so at some point he needs to be trained it's kind of like with kids you know you don't they've actually got to be stopped or disciplined or you know, spoken to, you can't just let him go thinking it's not going to be a problem because it will be someone's problem at some point. So you've got a little bit of respect for him going, well, so he's going to train this guy up. He's going to bring him, He's. it might be hard, but he's going to bring him up to speed. Absolutely. And I agree, I agree with that. And, and looking back on it and thinking, well, his, his intentions were good. I think the easy, as he said, the easy thing would have been to pass the buck. Yeah. Let it be someone else's problem. But it, it, he it's actually, also in this scene where he gets the, he gets the shits with Mark and send for, because, um, um, he disagrees with him. Kendrick. Yeah, Kendrick's in the room, and and he disagrees with him, and so he he, he chastises him for disagreeing with him in front of a, a junior officer, and that's where he says to him, you know, we we graduated together, and here I am at the top of the ranks, and you're, you know, not. Um, deal with it. I don't care. He literally says, I don't. Care. Yeah, he says more. He actually says, if that's a problem for you, I don't give a shit. He's, he's actually all right. So we 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 established Jessup as this sort of the, a hard sort of old school marine. And we find out that he's obviously he's Markinson. That there's a bit of tension between him and Markinson, who did go through the ranks together. But Jessup got to the top a bit faster. So meanwhile, the defendants, so Dawson and Downey, have been transferred to DC, and we discover that uh, Daniel Caffey's out playing softball while his his clients are sitting in a sitting in the in Washington DC jail cell, and. She comes over. Uh, Joe Galloway comes over and kind of chastises him. And she, he, he said to her, I think the line was, you know, would you be offended if I looked to get, if I was told if you were unfit for the defence, if I, I want to get someone else? He goes, look, it normally takes someone a bit longer to get to know me and know that I'm no good. But she said she disagreed. She says, oh, look, I know who you are. I know how you operate. And she lays this line on him. But it's my feeling that if this case is handled in the same fast food, slick ass, Persian bazaar manner with which you seem to handle everything else, then something's going to get missed. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I allowed Dawson and Downey to spend any more time in prison than absolutely necessary because their attorney had predetermined the path of least resistance. That's such a Sorkin script line, isn't it? How, how Sorkin is right. that? His words are amazing. <laughs> They're pretty good. But that's when the scene as well where she walks away saying, you know what a code red is? And he turns around and kind of leaves that with him. But then Which is the first moment where you, because in every other chance he gives, he gives back, right? Wherever he has, because sometimes he's just holding back. Sometimes he knows what he wants to do, but he's not sharing, right? So he'll, he'll just come back with the answer or his plan, right? 
Whereas in this case, it was clear that he didn't know what a code red was. And that yeah, was her. That was yeah. her walking away, winning that argument and leaving him with the knowledge that she was actually someone he needed by his side. He didn't know it yet. Absolutely. Well, with with that information, he did go eventually go to see Dawson and Downey and they, he asked them about, um, you know, was there intent to kill him? No, our intent was, was to discipline him. And then I think one of the first things he asked him is, what's a code red? What's a code red? Sir, a code red is a disciplinary engagement. What's that mean exactly? Sir, a Marine falls out of line. It's up to the men in his unit to get him back on track. So we, we discover, and the code red is used so often in the movie, and and the this is, as he described, it's something that it's kind of like, like I played in a footy team. So if one of your teammates isn't pulling their weight, mm. you'd, you'd say, mate, pull your head in. That's kind of an on-field code red. But in the, you know, yes. well, if you're a Marine in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, it's a little bit more serious where yeah, they're, they're, like, pretty, like, says they're pretty fanatical about being Marines down there. Yeah, this show. I mean, sometimes I need you to, you know, pull your head in and lift your game. Sometimes <laughs> I have to say that to you, mate. <laughs> so you're going to pull a code red on me, mate? Eh? <laughs> code red. So they get, into, they get into the details of the case now and there was there was thought that they poisoned the rag and the, the, mm. the, they, they forced the rag down his throat and he explains that, oh, we saw blood on the pillow and then they called the ambulance and all of that and so they were just going to shave his head, we found out. That was the code red was them yeah. to, to, uh, for the code red. And the first time we also found out that they were following orders, that they were told to give him the code red as well. They never waver from their defence. They never waver from what their side of the story is, which is um, a really important part of the overall story. Yeah, and then this is, this is also the point of the film soon after this where we meet Jack Ross, who's the, the government uh, the government attorney that's going to go against Kevin Kathy. Bacon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Kevin Bacon. So we find out that already, and, and, and Kathy did this in the very first scene meeting Joe Galloway, he says – she, she was talking about the case and he just pops out, 12 years. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, 12 years, I'll get him to drop this, drop that, 12 years. And she said, you, you haven't even looked at a bit of paper or spoken to a person. And he says, yeah, pretty impressive, hey? And <laughs> so that, we come forward to this meeting and Kathy's still got the 12 years in his mind thinking, well, that's our best go. If I get them for 12, they're out in six, see how we go. And that, that's kind of the first time they start to negotiate about that. Yeah. That becomes key in the movie, so the whole – you know, do we plead guilty? Do we plead not guilty? And yep. as we learn more about what happened and the and the characters of these Marines, that changes. Yeah, and I but think that the, that's, uh, that's again the most like. There's some really nice, um, and again, it'd be a really weird thing. Someone maybe has done it, but you know, plotting like a graph line for story arcs or or themes through a movie because that's you know their defense is a consistent theme, as is their resilience to not accept that they would do anything other than plead not guilty because they, in their bones, believe they're not guilty. Yeah, well, they, they felt they, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just following orders. Next up is one of the more memorable scenes of the movie is when they oh, yeah. go down to Cuba. So they had, they travel down to Cuba. They they land there. They're told that they will – I think um, Weinberg told Kathy, wear your whites. very hot down there. And then they discover when they get off the plane, they've got to wear camouflage because someone might take a shot at them. From do the you notice plane. that the key thing there is, you know um, – uh, Kathy follows Weinberg's lead and, and wears the whites. At, at part when he when Weinberg told him to wear the whites, I thought he's taking the Mickey here. He's going to wear he's going to wear the opposite. But no, they both walked off wearing whites. But um, Joe Galloway walked off in her in her car key. Yeah, and you yeah. realise at that point that's where she's also the the smarter officer. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just oh, exactly. a yeah, yeah. simple thing. As they walk off, you realise that. 
Yeah, that's a good pickup. No, that's exactly right. We um we, we discover and then they they're talking to they're getting driven, I think, by Noah Wiley's character down to the base. And then they meet they meet Jessup, they meet Markinson and Kendrick in his office. And uh, I think when Markinson meets Kathy, he says, oh, I had the pleasure of listening to your father. He spoke at my high school and then mm. Jessup turns around and goes, you, are you Lionel Caffey's son? And apparently in the movie, Lionel Caffey used to be the Attorney General and he sort of you know had some landmark cases. And then he goes, well, how is your dad? And he goes, oh, he died seven years ago. And he goes, oh, don't I feel like an ass. Yeah. So we established Don't I feel like an ass, Jesus. Yeah. So we, he tells him, look, whatever you need, go check out what you need. We'll meet back for lunch. And this this lunch is is there's a few lines in this lunch that are fantastic. We'll we'll get to in a sec. But the I think the Joe Galloway's there. Cruz is kind of just tick, just going through the motions. Like Kathy's going through the motions. Not really. I don't think he's involved yet. I think he's just sort of just cruising through. I think even Galloway says to him, he goes, "Are you gonna be, you know investigate? Or are you just take the tour?" And he goes, "Look, I'm pacing myself. Sort of leave me alone." But they, I, you know what, they, I, I looked. I took that slightly differently because they're sitting down at lunch, um, having had the, a very kind of whirlwind tour, where she would have spent hours in 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 his apartment, but he pretty much just looked, took it in, and walked out. But you later realise there's a lot to what he took in, and I think that is evident from the way he approaches this. He goes to lunch knowing what he's seen, knowing what he wants, and just ready, frankly, to eat and leave. Do you know what I mean? Like that's right. No, exactly. It look like he's taking it easy. I don't think for a second he's taking it easy. I think he's just gathering what he needs to know and and what he needs to see. But here's the thing that I picked up in this latest watch is that um, Nicholson or Jessup kind of does himself a disservice here. If he had it just sort of placated Kathy and said, "Yeah, whatever you need." If if he did it, pull him up a couple of times in this lunch and kind of sort of have a crack at him. Hmm. I think the out, the outcome that's he would have been whole, more complacent. I think that's in the whole, whole point of not point of this movie. That's the whole underlying requirement of this movie. The outcome that we'll talk about in the courtroom stems from this very lunch. This meeting, absolutely. He realizes the, seed, the seeds planted exactly. right here. He realizes this bloke is yeah. unwilling to be spoken to anyway outside of the military way. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's just so, so well set up as a seed planter. But as he's going, when he goes, oh, look, let's go. And then Joe says, no, no, I've got more questions. And then it dawns on it dawns on Jessup that yeah, she doesn't race him. Yeah. He wants to he walk wants away, to but he keeps yeah. sitting down when she starts talking. She wants to keep asking questions. And then it you and I, I, think, I think any viewer is sitting there going, mate, just get up and leave. Just tell her to go. But then it dawns on Jessup. <laughs> yeah. Well, he says, oh, I get it now. She outranks you. And then he has this little thing to say. If you haven't gotten a blowjob from a superior officer, well, you're just letting the best in life pass you by. Colonel, the practice of code reds is still condemned of course, by officers my on problem space, is I'm a colonel, so I'll just have to go on taking cold showers until they elect some gal president. <laughs> so, so that was like, I think he shows there that he's a bit of a dinosaur. Like, imagine saying that, dropping that sort of you know, misogynistic sort of line in front of a female officer. It's funny because if you look at that as um, military, you know, speak. Sort it, of boys it, club it, sort of talk. It, yeah. it wouldn't have worked coming out of the mouth of Kiefer Sutherland, right? It no. only works coming out of the mouth of a literal dinosaur. You know what I mean? Like it has to come from someone who's got, you know, he speaks earlier about the Vietnam and all that. So he he's not going to change. And you know that from this point. 
But she, then he also says, oh, look, as, as, as Kathy's leaving, he goes, oh, look, I'll just need a copy of the transfer order. And that sort of, that, that's when Jessup bristles up once more. You see, Danny, I can deal with the bullets and the bombs and the blood. I don't want money and I don't want medals. What I do want is for you to stand there in that faggoty white uniform and with your Harvard mouth extend me some fucking courtesy. So yeah, that kind of sets the sets us off at a pace here where, righto, they're at odds here. It, 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 Jessup's obviously established himself. He goes, look, I do things my way, mate. And, you know, you want to come at me, do your best. And we, we, after, after they get back from Cuba, the next kind of event that happens here is they discover that Markinson goes UA, so unauthorized absence. So Markinson has disappeared. And you saw from earlier in the film where he was at odds with how they should handle this. He's clearly so, the, the best chance they've yeah. got at cracking this. And yeah. he mysteriously disappears. So they get back from Cuba and they, they talk to their clients again. They talk to uh, Dawson and Downey again. And then Kendrick gets involved. Well, they, they talk about Kendrick, who was their superior officer. Mm. And they discover that Kendrick actually ordered them to do, to, to, to put, do the code red. Uh, in private. So they said that the, the the line was that the men were specifically told not to touch Santiago, but Kendrick came into their room, they discovered, and told them after the meeting broke up to give to give them a code red. So they go off and see see Jack Ross and try to talk Turkey. Jessup Star is on the rise. Division will give me a lot of room on this one to spare Jessup and the Corps any embarrassment. How much room? I'll knock it all down to involuntary manslaughter, two years, or home in six months. No deal. We're going to court. Joe. No, you're not. Why not? Because you'll lose. And Danny knows it. Mm. So, again, this is another what-do-we-do moment. Like, at the, we're sort of confronted with the fact that I remember earlier in the film, Kathy says, listen, you, you're facing the better path of li- a life, better part of a life imprisonment in Levinson if you go down this path. So here's an opportunity where, forget the 12 years, They've got it down to two years home in six months. Now, you can imagine to Kathy, who's a natural-born natural negotiator, negotiator, he's thinking, wow, he's like he's won a lot of steak knives um, immediately <laughs> because he thinks 12 years. So, he, I mean, he basically rushes over now to Dawson and Downey and says, boys, like, here it is. We're ready to go. How good is this? You'll be out in six months. And he's like, but then what? You know, like, what, yeah. what then? I'm still – just dishonorably discharged. No, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I was ordered to do it. I did it. Yeah. And it's at that moment where you realise that Kathy's it's probably this moment where Kathy realises how critical this we followed an order thing really is because they're willing to go to court and have the entire book thrown at them, potentially lifelong sentencing yeah. instead of six months in jail. And and Kathy doesn't really want to, like, it, it's it, this is kind of the the transformation decision time where he doesn't want to be associated with someone who's willing to throw. I think the line he says, he goes, he's willing to go to jail just to spite me. He doesn't want to take my advice and realizes just how fanatical they are about, look, we, we did nothing wrong. If, if he goes, I'll be judged on that. I don't care. Yep. And he then decides, look, I want new counsel assigned. And this is, I think the point where the triggers pull, this is the point where, Cruz is sort of faced with the, the the dilemma: Do I go? Do I make an argument? Do you remember there was a scene where the the Weinberg was saying, "Oh, yeah, like the Nazis at Nuremberg," and he goes, "They, they well, these guys aren't Nazis. They're a couple of young boys doing this, blah blah blah." And then she goes, "Then 
Joe Galloway says, there you go. Look, you're making an argument. You're, you're making their case for yeah. it. Do yeah. you want to do this? And then it kind of becomes it becomes the sort of decision time. What is he going to do? Is he going to – there's a period there where like, there's some some scenes where he's sort of contemplating by himself, what am I going to he, do? He says he's going to go into the court and he's going to um, ask for an adjournment to get seek new counsel for them. That's what he's going yeah. to do. And you actually don't know his decision until they get to the courtroom, right? Well, that's they, right. That's the next scene. They go to the arraignment. This is the arraignment where they, you've got to make a plea. And he he's running late. Remember, they're looking at their watches thinking, where is this bloke? Has he already left us already? Yeah. He, he eventually comes in and they ask for a plea. And then he says, they're not guilty. Yeah. He doesn't say well, our plea is not guilty. He says, they, they are not guilty. Yeah, that's his plea, and then the investigation and preparation to begins. But he comes to the realization as well in that scene. He asks the question: Why does a lawyer with nine months' experience get, uh, uh, with a record for plea bargaining, get assigned a murder case? Yeah, was it so it doesn't see the inside of a courtroom? That was his line. So, because essentially anyone above um, Caffey in the in the military is gone. This bloke. All he does is plea bargain. He doesn't know how to. He doesn't, in fact, know how to defend. So, even the 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 twelve years was likely to be the outcome. So, him getting it down to you know basically six months, it was there was never a consideration in anyone's mind outside of that small team that this was going to go to court, and that's that was the intention because they didn't want it to go to court. Did they you knew. see the reaction on you know how Jack Ross was sitting opposite him, where the, the other the government defender, yeah. and look on his face when he he pleaded not guilty. Yeah, and he sort of went, okay, right, we're going to do this the hard way then, and that kind of set set the ball rolling. So we we sort of the investigation gets started. They're still looking for Markinson. So there's a bit of a montage here where we see looking for Markinson. Weinberg's yep. real skill is training the like preparing the witnesses. So he's training Daw- 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 Dawson and Downey, Downey especially, to answer the question. Yes, look, you call him Willie. They're going to think of a, a kid whose whose mother's going to miss him. From now on, he's he's Santiago, private Santiago. So they're trying to train him, train him as a, yeah. as a bit of witness. He's also this. This is the you know the, I guess introvert. He's a very um, naive young man. He speaks very kind of slowly, like you know Southern Texas kind of very slow speech. And he's like, mate, you've got to get this stuff out. You otherwise, and he actually says like that country hick thing that that'll that'll be appealing for the first day. But after that, mate, you got to talk. You got to get this out. It's a really nice. Um, expansion of that character. Absolutely. So the court case begins, and of course, the government presents their case first. Yeah, yeah. And we see Jack Ross get up and make a well, a, a, an, an opening statement that you really can't argue with. The facts of the case are these. On midnight of September 6, the accused entered the barracks room of their platoon mate, PFC William Santiago. They woke him up, tied his arms and legs with tape, and forced a rag into his throat. A few minutes later, a chemical reaction called lactic acidosis caused his lungs to begin bleeding. He drowned in his own blood and was pronounced dead at 37 minutes past midnight. These are the facts of the case, and they are undisputed. So that's pretty, pretty hard to argue against that, right? <laughs> yeah, good. But I think what, what Kathy realizes is that where they're from and from getting to know the, these two of these two Marines, just about how, where they are, they're stationed at Guantanamo Bay where, you know what, I had to wear camouflage gear because someone's going to take a shot at me. So he realizes yep. that, you know, these, where these blokes are, you follow orders, 
or you pack your bags. That's it. Was that. So that's what he wanted to try to establish there. And I think that when what we see is Ross then bringing up all the other platoon members. Remember, we saw Cuba Gooding Jr., yeah. Noah Wiley. They were the guys who were sort of reacting to the fact that that uh, Santiago went outside the unit. He wrote those letters. It was sort of he he sort of d- broke the code. Didn't do it was by Noah the Noah Wiley, a defence witness. He was a government defence witness. He was the guy who, when um, the um, they said, "Oh, have you ever had a code red on you?" He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "I, I, I, I would drop my I, my rifle, slipped out of my hands because I didn't put on the resin. They they punched me in the arm for two hours." He goes, "You know what? It worked because I never dropped my rifle ever again." So yeah. he was one of the guys saying that. And then I think um, Jack Ross says, "Show me in the Marine Manual where it says Code Red." He goes, "Well, and no, this, it's this not is it. his aha moment. This is his wow. I'm going to smack down here. This is it. I mean, my, their whole case, the defense's case, rests on this Code Red. So I'm going to prove that a Code Red doesn't exist, and therefore there's no liability. If if a Code Red doesn't exist, an order can't exist. And it's 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 a honestly, I know the you know um, the famous line is critical to this movie, but I actually think this is one of the best scenes in the movie because he. He he tries to prove that a code red is a thing, and, and is not a thing by showing him the mess hall book and the and the Guantanamo handbook, and then and then Kathy comes back and it's like imagine being in the courtroom when this happened. Imagine you see a lawyer think so promptly on his feet to say, okay, in the handbook is the mess hall there? No, mess hall. Doing? You didn't eat. <laughs> He goes, we yes. just fired people. Oh, okay, so well, it's not the handbook. It's still a thing. <laughs> so good, such yeah. a great scene. But we, we established, too, that they, they then get the doctor on the stand. Yep. The doctor's testimony was all about sort of the, the manner of his death and the lactic acidosis, which is sort of what, what sped up lactic acidosis, though they reckon might have been some kind of solvent, some kind of poison on the rag. But we we dig in a little bit further, and I think what, what, what we see here is, is Caffey at his best in the cross. Is it possible to have a serious coronary condition where the initial warning signals were so mild as to escape a physician during a routine medical exam? Possibly. There would still be symptoms, though. What kind of symptoms? There are hundreds of... Chest pains? Yes. Shortness of breath? Yes. Fatigue? Of course. Doctor, is this your signature? Yes, it is. This is an order for Private Santiago to be put on restricted duty. Would you read your handwritten remarks at the bottom of the page, please, sir? Initial testing, negative. Patient complains of chest pains, shortness of breath, and fatigue. So so good. Uh, boom. So he's kind of he, – what is insinuating there is that the doctor's trying to cover his ass. Because yeah. if, if he had approved a guy to enter the the military with those conditions, it's going to make him look like a fool. Yep. So the, the sort of the implied thing here is that the, the doctor was sort of uh, – they, they, they had a word to the doctor before this court case. But yeah. the, the, this is sort of the point of tension where um, the re, Ross gets up and says – they end up uh, – I think Joe Galloway gets up and strenuously objects against the testimony <laughs> and – and part of the judge says this guy, this he's an expert witness. We're going to hear what he has to say. And and Weinberg saying as he you even got the judge saying he's an expert witness. Made made yeah. our cross look like there's a, a couple of good Weinberg. lines here from Weinberg because yeah. the rest everyone's left the courtroom and it's just the three defense attorneys. And Weinberg looks at her and says, "You even as you said, you even have the just judge confirming he's an expert witness." And then he says, "So you strenuously object, do you?" So, so you object. Yeah, yeah. The, the judge doesn't listen, and so you strenuously object. That that'll do it. It's such a good line. Yeah, 
But this is also the point, too, where you can tell the whole movie, Joe Galloway is on the side of the Marines. She's, she's really got them at heart. And yeah. Weinberg is kind of against them. And this is the, remember, this is the scene this is where he asks, why do you, yeah, well, he, they say, why do, you hate, why do you hate them so much? Yeah. He goes, oh, they beat up on a weaker kid. And then she says, and he says, why do you like them so much? Yes. Because they stand on a wall and say, nothing's going to get you tonight. So in that very moment, we see their opposing views on these two. And I, and I think they kind of get each other's point. In that, That's that, right. That, I, what I got from that moment was that they, they heard it. It's like a really kind of important life lesson, isn't it? You know, hear the opposition out. Hear the opposing view. But then give yours and perhaps try and understand both sides. And I think it is a really good moment of reflection for them both because you've also got to remember that um, Sam it has a little baby girl. And I know it's not an important part of the story, but it's important that he has that baby because it gives you that sense of protection. And a parent, yes. only a parent can understand the protection absolutely you yeah. live. And Great so point. that standing yeah. on a fence and making sure that we're all safe, that hits home to him. So yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a, a really point. key yeah. moment. Absolutely right. Well, next up we see uh, Kathy heading off to the newsstand. Mm. And By the way, the newsstand is a classic <laughs> little bit, right? There's two two instances where he goes to the newsstand. Yeah. And they, just they, all the cliches. <laughs> they, they run cliches. Him and the newsstand yeah, guy just running like. cliches. Yeah, I, I'd love to know how Aaron Sorkin describes those. <laughs> how, how do you reckon Aaron Sorkin describes those? Do you think they're just kind of um, moments of breath? So you ta- you, you don't. You can take a breath from the the hard paced storyline. You just, yeah, you just sort of the the, change the pace a bit, sort of ease off on the on the gas a little bit. But of course, he puts the gas on back straight away because he has a little visitor in the car. Are you aware you're under subpoena? Yes, I'm also aware that the lives of two Marines are in your hands. If there was something I could do about that, I would. But since I can't, all I can do is help you, Lieutenant. What do you know? I know everything. Was it a code red? Yes. Did Kendrick give the order? Yes. Did you witness it? I didn't need it. Did you witness it? No. And how do you know? I know. Yeah, you know shit. He was never going to be transferred off that base. (laughs) Jessup was going to keep him on the base. He said he wanted him trained. You've got the transport. It's got your signature. I know. I signed him the morning you arrived in Cuba, five days after Santiago died. So he... That was Markinson, by the way, if you didn't work yeah. that out. He was – and we find out earlier in the film, Jack Ross says to him, he goes, you know what he was doing for 17 of his 26 years? Counterintelligence. He goes, yeah. Markinson's gone. There is no Markinson. So yeah. we knew that this guy can – my first thought was, how the hell did this dude get from Cuba to Washington without people finding out? Well, obviously, counterintelligence is uh, – But is, also, I've got to say, from the moment he disappeared, I knew he was coming back. Yeah, yeah. That, well, there was that. I, I reckon it's kind of um, it's a little factor that hangs in the air. You think, well, this guy's got a bomb to drop maybe later on. It's sort yeah. of it's like, yeah. a, like a dummy. It's throwing a bit of a dummy in the in the movie there. But we get back in the court and we, we get uh, this is when Kendrick's on the stand, and the line of questioning here is looking back at how Kendrick, how he had given Dawson a below average rating. Yes. We discover that that uh, one of his one of his colleagues, one of his his, his co soldiers, was put on rations, and Dawson was in trouble for slipping him food into in the barracks, and he was that's why he was given the going. Um, he was punished. For, he disobeyed an order 
and that's why he was punished for that and given a below-par rating. But we see, again, Caffey great on his feet, really sort of asking him the question and, and putting this to Kendrick. Can Dawson determine on his own which orders he's going to follow? No, he cannot. A lesson he learned after the Curtis Bell incident, am I right? I would think so. You know so, don't you, Lieutenant? Object! Sustained. Lieutenant Kendrick, one final question. If you had ordered Dawson to give Santiago a code red... I specifically ordered those men... Is it reasonable to think he would have disobeyed you again? Lieutenant, don't answer that. So we established there that Kendrick punished him for disobeying an order, and now Dawson wasn't going to disobey him again. Yes. Remember, he said his, his argument was that Kendrick gave him an order to do the code red. Yeah. So his argument here is saying, well, he's not going to disobey you. You, he obviously, you obviously told him he obeyed you. Exactly. Caffey catches him out. See, it's a funny thing. In a normal legal uh, court, court case, you'd have someone being caught in a lie. But he's actually being caught in the truth, right? Yeah. He's being caught in the truth because in his truth, um, this, bloke w- this bloke disobeyed an order and was taught a lesson. He would never disobey an order again. And so the truth is he would never disobey an order. Well, if he did it, he must have been ordered to do it. it. He must have been ordered to do it. That's right. So we, we get back now to Markinson in the remember they put him up in a hotel with security with my federal marshals on the door. And we find out that the logbook was altered. Uh, so yeah. he says, look, you know, Jessup stars on the rise, you know, he can sidestep a few landmines. He can make a whole flight disappear. It doesn't matter. And then he says, he goes, you don't intend to still put me on the stand. He was a little bit apprehensive that he was yeah. going to get on the stand. So we discover in the next scene that he was, you know, he, he is uh, Markinson's narrating a letter that he writes to the yes. parents of Santiago and, saying, yeah, I'm proud, not proud of what I've done. And, you know, the, or I could have stopped it. And then he ends up killing himself in his full dress uniform. Yeah. And again, we see that, you know, this is a, a detrimental to their case. But the other, the other big bomb that drops, but when they're back in the courtroom is when Downey, admits that he wasn't actually in the room oh. when Kendrick gave the order. So I'm there was like, no, what are yeah, you doing? So he, he sort of the, the Ross, the, the government prosecutor was thinking, well, we've got him now. Like they, they weren't in, he wasn't even in the room yeah. when the order was given. And kind it's of fascinating uh, here because there's no point actually where, and I'm, this is one of those things, maybe it was in the screenplay and drop for time or whatever, but there was no point where they, they get um, the defendants together and, essentially have a go at him again. Because many times that he's like, mate, just speak openly. Tell me what's going on. You didn't ask me a question. I don't, shouldn't have to ask you. Just yeah. tell me what's going on. And this is the moment they, they should have brought them out and chastised them and said, you know, in any other legal show to be like, dudes, you've got to tell us now everything we, that we need to yeah. know. But it, it was kind of implied, right, that the case, the implication well, here was the case is gone because this kid. falling apart. Yeah. Absolutely right. And, and. What do we? What do we see? We see uh, the next scene is Caffey coming. He got got on the drink. He says, "I thought I'd have a drink." He said, "Obviously, he's lost all hope." And the the consideration now is whether they get Jessup on the stand. And this is this is a really classic line. This is the the argument they have. You put him on the stand, and you get it from him. Oh, we get it from him. Yes, no problem. We get it from him, Colonel Jessup. Isn't it true that you ordered the code red on Santiago? Listen, we're all a little. And- I'm sorry, your time's run out. 
What do we have for the losers, Judge? Well, for our defendants, it's a lifetime at exotic Fort Leavenworth. And for defense counsel Kathy, that's right, it's a court martial. Yes, Johnny, after falsely accusing a highly decorated Marine officer of conspiracy and perjury, Lieutenant Kathy will have a long and prosperous career teaching typewriter maintenance at the Rocco Colombo School for Women. It's a good look. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant Sorkin line it's there. It's a great script. It's a great performance. Oh, um, yeah. I called it the game show um, moment. It was just <laughs> uh, was awesome. wrong again. Yeah, but uh, and I think what he does after that, he remember he sort of throws all the stuff off the table and yeah. Joe gets all scared and runs out in the rain and Next minute, we see him saying, "Look, I'm going to put I'm going to put Jessup on the stand." He re- he has a realization that yeah. that's what what we're going to do, and so we come now to the sort of the climactic scene in the courtroom where, um, in the meantime, what, while way, this that everything we've talked about up up until now is about an hour forty, maybe even an hour thirty of the whole movie. This last bit is like a solid chunk. There's some really gripping, big, long. Like this is a solid bit of. Yeah, screenplay, let alone acting, let alone cinematography. Climax of the movie right here. And we see Kathy, uh, remember he walks into his wardrobe and sort of looks at his looks at his clothes all arranged and he sort of has a flashback that that's what he saw in, in Santiago's locker as well. And um, he also, he goes to the, he goes to look through all the phone records and um, remembers obviously Santiago's clothing. So, his line of questioning to Jessup when he first gets him on the stand, he's talking about, you know, you you came here for a couple of days. What did you do? Did you pack? And they go, what the hell has this got to do with everything? And they give him a bit of leeway. And he goes, yeah, I uh, made a phone call to my sister. I called my buddy from here. He goes, look, you you were coming for one day. You made all these phone calls. You packed your bags. Santiago was living for the rest of his life. He wrote 14 letters, but he didn't make a single phone call to say that he was being transferred. Didn't call anyone. He didn't that's call anyone to pick him up at the airport. Didn't yeah. pack his bag. And, mate, that was – see, that was when you then flash back to that first visit to, to his room and and Kathy did. He looked at he looked at his shirts and, and he, he absorbed them. That's essentially all he absorbed from the room. Which so meanwhile, was, yeah. you've got to remember, Tia, meanwhile, he's got two guys from Andrews Air Force Base yeah, yeah. Sitting, sitting in the courtroom as well. Um, Jessup turns around and goes, yeah, I did this. He goes, maybe he never had friends. Maybe he was a late, an early riser. He goes, tell me, these guys, their lives are on the line. Please tell me they've got more than just a phone bill to to help them here. And this was the point where Kathy walks back to the table where you see sort of from sort of him, yes. him walking back from their perspective and they're sitting at the table. He grabs the water. You can see his hand visibly shaking. yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is the moment he decides he's oh, going to go on. for it. So he, he takes on Jessup. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. 
You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did. <laughs> Honestly, like how many other moments like that are there in movies? Because Man. it's a monologue that for is all time. That like, is genius. What, what I wrote in my notes was, you, you know that line, you can't handle the truth. Like it's just so famous. It's iconic. Actually, the monologue after it is so much better than that line. So Absolutely. much better. But you got to remember too, just before that that bit we just played, Jessup was kind of tying himself in a bit of a knot when he was saying that, son, people follow orders or men die. He was, that he was doing the same thing as Kenrick. He was, yes. he was burying himself in truth. But he was also saying, he said, look, he was, why do you, if, he says, if he was, if your orders were always followed, why did he need to be transferred off the base? And he said, well, people take Why did he need to be protected? Yeah, yes, he, why people take the in their order own Why yeah. did you even need to give an order to, to not touch him? Like, so he goes, oh, people are going to take their matters in their own hands. He goes, no, sir, you said that they, they follow orders or people die, and that led into that amazing that, that amazing finish there. But we, uh, you know, obviously he's rattled. He gets up. He's placed under arrest. And, uh, you know, Ross, did you see when Ross, when after Jessup said what he did, Ross, he goes, okay, what's going to happen now? Ross was sort of like stunned mullet, was sort of just staring into yeah. space thinking, what the hell yeah. just happened? And uh, we find then that uh, the guys are dishonorably discharged and there's a realisation that, you know, that we should have been protecting guys like Willie, you know. We, we should have. That, that's why we're in the Marines in the first place. But it's also Amazing. A, an utterly sad moment in the movie because they're found not guilty of murder, not guilty of conspiracy to murder, but they are found guilty of one charge and they're dishonor- dishonorably discharged from the Marines. And that's like, that's heartbreaking because that's all they yeah. wanted was to do their job. And that's what they wanted to avoid was any, any discharge. But that line at the end from Caffey, Tom Cruise, where he turns and he says, you don't need a patch on your arm to have honor. It, like, it's just, it's just so well done. Like it, because it's weird to me. The only thing I don't, truly understand and maybe you can help me with this is why did he not like Kathy? like what was it about that he didn't respect i think what he saw with Kathy was that you're just kind of this fly-by-nighter who's only been in the military a little while you just sort of you you just you know path of least resistance you don't get it he wasn't the same level of of commitment as these guys were he sort of saw him as this sort of pretty boy who wasn't really didn't want to get his hands dirty sort of thing that's sort of why they didn't see eye to eye from the beginning. Yeah, but, right. um, I feel like at, that didn't go. If I watched it again, maybe that had come through better. But um, yeah, well, I, I just think that he loses a bit of respect for him because he doesn't get it. Like, he, we'll, we'll go through some of the quotes that will come through in some of the quotes, which we'll get onto right now, actually. So, the uh, did you catch the line? I think the, uh, the our first line from, from Jessup is this 
Who the fuck is PFC William T. Santiago? Private Santiago is a member of Second Platoon Bravo, sir. Yeah. Well, apparently he's not very happy down here at Shangri-La because he's written letters to everybody but Santa Claus asking for a transfer. <laughs> <laughs> really good introduction of uh, of Jessup, but uh, oh. we were talking a minute ago about the attitude, like Dawson especially, and he describes that code. So this is what he says: Unit Core God Country. I beg your pardon. Unit Core God Country, sir. Now that was him explaining. Yeah. What what code? What you that, that, that's the priority. Unit Core God Country. Guys, what? That's how that's how fanatical they were about being Marines, and that was something that Joe Galloway that's mentioned to Weinberg. He goes, yeah, you remember these Marines are fanatic. He goes, fanatical about what? He goes, about being Marines. So you knew that these guys, they don't muck around. But moving on, I think this is a pretty cool quote as well. When they were down in Cuba, and I think Nicholson, or Jessup, I should say, was sort of sensed that there was a bit of heat. I think he watched, he told Galloway to watch her tone. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are trained to kill me. So don't think for one second that you can come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. See, I think that establishes him as being, you know what, do your best, roll the dice. He, he, I think he considered himself like untouchable. He's a colonel. He, was, he couldn't be, he couldn't be, you couldn't topple him. But I liked the it established early on the tension between Kendrick and Kathy. Remember when they were in the? Well, I hope uh, this quote the is the Navy one because it's a great yes, line. It is. Yes, it is. When when he goes, he goes. What the, the, you see these tension and he and he asks him. He asks him this. Lieutenant Kendrick, may I call you John? No, you may not. Have I done something to offend you? No, I like all you Navy boys. Every time we got to go someplace to fight, you fellas always give us a ride. So, <laughs> that was the line that you mentioned. So immediately, and again, this is great writing because it pits, like Caffey was already at odds with Dawson about his attitude. So there was that bit of conflict. It also pits him against Kendrick, who is like a Bible-bashing, corrupt officer who treat, looks down his nose at the Navy so that again, conflict just and, and that pays off beautifully in the courtroom later on. Remember that? And the last one is, of course, you've already mentioned this one. Harold. Sir. You don't need to wear a patch in your arm to have honor. Ten hot! There's an officer on deck. That was Can nice. Little, very very West Wingy music too. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> mm. Don't mind that. It's a good line. Alrighty, there was a bit of dust in the air when I when I watched that bit. That was uh, yeah, that was a yeah, good something line. Was, something well, I what's that my eye? Is that what he said? Or? <laughs> <laughs> so, I was just glad I was on my own. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Right about. Okay. Let's talk about some plot holes here, mate. Yep. How did that happen? The first one that's been discussed by fans of this movie have taken it apart pretty pretty thoroughly. And one important part of the plot is the fact that Jessup insisted that uh, Santiago was getting transferred off the base. Now, plot hole here is that he actually doesn't have the power to discharge him as a Marine. He's got to go, it's got to be, if he's being released on medical grounds, which is what it was, 
he needed to go through medical boards to review it. So one at, one at Guantanamo Bay with the Navy and then another senior medical board. Good one, it. Internet. How boring oh, was out of 20 minutes? Well, saying, it, it, yeah, it was, you know, let's just leave that bit out. Okay, next up, remember when they told him, this was strange to me, when they said, look, wear your camouflage over your white Navy whites. But, you know, they didn't do, they didn't take off their white no, hats. They're still wearing wet, white still pants white hats. White hat. Target, hello, come on. An open-sided Jeep. (laughs) Now, when the where the crime took place, so this was when when this happened, and you see the police tape, the the do not enter tape and all that. Military police, yep. It would have been everything would have been documented by investigators. They would have taken photos and notes. Like this is the military; they're thorough with all of this stuff. So there'd be there'd be no reason to have the tape up and have it still as it is. There would have been some investigation done already by the military police. Yeah. So there was no – it's like Caffey, who's the lawyer, had to do the investigation, not the military police. That's just something that people pointed out as well. Now, when in the courtroom, when the doctor was asked to speculate – this is a big one for, for fans of this movie. They, they were speculating on the cause of death, and there was an argument whether, yeah, he was poisoned, he wasn't poisoned. Wouldn't there have been a autopsy? The pathologist who would have performed the autopsy would have given evidence in the courtroom. Well, but I no, I say that the doctor in the script anyway, that's asked and answered because the doctor says there are plenty of uh, substances that can't be detected in the human body or on fabrics. Yeah, but he, but he, yeah, I think there would have been a more definitive answer to that question whether it was a result of him their poison triggering the lactic acidosis or his condition triggering that off. So anyway, there should have been. You know I think when, when you tell me all these really potholes, I think everyone should just watch the movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. okay. okay. I agree with you, mate. I, imagine having, including all this, it would have been would have made the movie longer and boring. Yeah. Um, one, this is another thing that sticks out for me too. After his, remember after his blow up and he gets on the drink mm. and, he decides Drive? to go after what? Yes, he drives his car. First thing I thought. Yeah, he's off his he's off the seat. So yeah. It's not, it's not that he drives the car. He's driving. It's a left-hand drive. He's driving the car. Yeah, Sam is in the passenger seat. Kathy's driving. Uh, is, he, is he in the seat? I thought he was alone. Yes. Is he in the car? No, he, the yeah. other bloke's in the car. And I'm thinking, dude, you're letting him drive. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what, yeah. that, that, that stood out to me as well. That was uh, uh, That disturbed me. Rightio, things you might not know, Trev. Now, we mentioned the fact that the original play was inspired by an actual Code Red in Guantanamo right. Bay. Wow. There was a, a incident where a Lance Corporal named David Cox and nine other men, they beat up, they tied up a Marine, beat him up severely because he basically did what Santiago did. He sort of went, he ratted on someone outside the unit. Uh, but Cox was later acquitted. Co- Cox was... Uh, he was acquitted, but he was honourably discharged. But here's this, how's this, right? That guy, David Cox, in 1994, years later, vanished mysteriously and his bullet-riddled body was found. He was murdered, but his murder remains unsolved. So I don't know whether it was a bit of vengeance on, uh, on, the, <laughs> on the guys involved, but anyway. Now, I remember, remember I mentioned earlier that Aaron Sorkin had a bit of family help with this yeah. story? Apparently, he got the idea from his sister, who was had a, experienced something a similar incident at Guantanamo Bay, and sort of she sort of became the Commander Galloway character. She sort of had be had that had that um, 
had that viewpoint. So in the in in the incident, um, the victim who was uh, assaulted by m- multiple Marines, up to nine different Marines, was injured, but he didn't die. That was the incident that the sister advised him. So Sorkin decided, you know what, that's a good idea for a play, and uh, and the screenplay. Sorkin uh, worked with Rob Reiner, the director, quite thoroughly, and. The director, he, when he was writing, that apparently went through like months of revisions of the screenplay. And the one big change from the play to the movie was the doctored logbook in the play is the thing that gets Jessup undone. The doctored logbook is kind of what they call that the smoking gun. Right. They decide to, that in the movie, that Kathy needs to. Win the case either one with his courtroom skills alone, rather than a a piece of evidence that was found. Thus, the uh, the agent, the 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 officers from uh, Andrews, correct. And they they were just there. Remember, they were there just to say they knew nothing. They were just there to intimidate Jessup on the stand. Uh, Now, when the when Aaron Sorkin was writing the screenplay adaptation, he was advised by executives at TriStar Pictures, who produced the movie that the movie needed a sex scene. He needed some needed to get needed to get Kathy and Galloway together. Might have been down and, for that. And in being his first screenplay, he sort of wrote a scene to 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 make him happy. Rob Reiner though said, nah, we're not doing that, mate. He sort of said, look, he stood up and said, we're not doing that. Although in the one of the drafts of the movie, the movie doesn't end with, you know, the movie, the last scene is Tom Cruise looking up in the courtroom saying, you know, yep. that it says the end. In the in one draft, it ends with um, Kathy asking Joe out on a date. And the line, remember she uses, remember she mentioned to wear his uh, proper socks, well, make sure your socks are the same colour. She mentions that line, where you wear your, the socks, the matching socks. Um, they in, And I mentioned there, there was a scene in the script that, that Sorkin wrote where, Kathy and Galloway had a sex scene, but it was dropped. So um, they, they decided, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. One thing that they didn't get was the Defence Department endorsement. They refused to endorse the film. Huh? They, they painted them I in, wonder a, in why. a bad light. Yeah, they thought, yeah, you know what? This isn't really going to make people rush to join the Marines, so we, we're going to not endorse you. Um, here's a really interesting fact as well. The actor who played Dawson, you know, the big dude, in reality, his name is Wolfgang Bodison. And have a guess, he was Rob Reiner's assistant. Huh. Rob Reiner turned around and said, you know what, mate? You look like a Marine. I want you to play Dawson. And that was his very first acting role. And yeah, he went on to have a, a career. Still, He's still acting to this day. So I thought, he said, look, you look like a Marine. You're going to be Dawson. Have a guess, well, mate. This, you're going to love this one. You're going to love this fact. You know who was supposed to play Sam Weinberg? Jason Alexander. George Costanza. And the reason why was Seinfeld. Because Seinfeld in 1989 was unexpectedly renewed. The contract was renewed for another season. Yeah. And so Jason Alexander went back to work on Seinfeld and went on to be George Costanza. And couldn't make, couldn't give him the time that he required for him to be in the movie. So yeah, imagine George uh, on, on the bench there with him, eh? Look, I, I don't think I've ever seen 
him do anything really serious. I need to he find was in pretty, Watch Pretty Woman. He's in Pretty Woman as well. He plays Richard Gere's lawyer in that. He's a pretty slimy sort of act character in that one. Um, have a guess how many times the word sir is used in this movie, mate. Have a guess. Just you guess. 273. Lower. Oh, okay. 150. Higher. Hit me. 164 times. Yeah. That means yeah. on average it was said once every 50 seconds in the movie. Sir. And it should have been said more, according to Jessup. Now, I'm sure you're a fan, like me, of Aaron Sorkin. And yes. you've seen plenty of his stuff. And he loves a walk and talk. The walk he and does. talk. You know oh, where yes. they're walking, right? West Wing Apparently, famous. West Wing famous for it. All of his movies and shows are famous for it. But you know what? It started in this movie. Wow. Rob Reiner suggested when Kathy and Ross, the original scene was them sitting at a desk. He goes, now let's get them up and walking. Let's walk and talk. Let's do it that way. And it became kind of a trademark for Aaron Sorkin from from then on. Because you think about it, this movie, there were no car chases. There were no explosions. There were no spaceships. It was people talking. So they had to make it as interesting as possible. And that's why the walk and talk was invented. Now, remember I told you about a an actor who was offered the role of Nathan Jessup before Jack Nicholson. Right. That actor was Gene Hackman. Oh, okay. Gene Hackman, he turned it down because he was offered the role in Clint Eastwood's film Unforgiven, which went on to win the Oscar for Best Picture and... Hackman was also won the Oscar that was against Jack Nicholson. So if he had taken the Jack Nicholson role, he wouldn't have had an Oscar nomination in Unforgiven. And so it turned around that he refused Jack Nicholson's role and ended up beating Jack Nicholson for the Oscar for that role. Wow. Funny how things come around. And the movie's famous line, you can't handle the truth, was voted as the number, as number 92 movie quote by the American Film Institute. So 92 out of the top 100 movie quotes was you can't handle the truth. A couple of quick did you notices, mate. Did you notice Aaron Sorkin in the movie? I wouldn't know what he looks like. Aaron Sorkin is in the movie. It's the first bar scene where you see he's talking to oh, a God, woman. Is he the guy that's talking about a de- like a deposition or something? Yes. He goes, I'm going to get you blind on paperwork and he's yes. talking to a girl. That's Aaron Sorkin. I did, you know what? It's funny because I recognised him. I thought that's a very weird bit part for an actor. It's not an actor. That's Aaron Sorkin. Now, here's one that really every time I watch this movie, I can't help but see. It's a pretty bad mistake. And it's the scene where at the very end, you remember when Jessup says, I'm going to rip your head off and piss on your skull. And remember, he's trying to attack Cruz and they grab him and then he, he fixes up his clothes. When he turns around to pick up his hat, at, yeah. His tie is still askew. When he when he when he fixes up his clothing, continuity, right, folks, come yeah, on. His tie is right in the middle. When he turns around, it looks like he's not wearing a tie. The tie's been still twisted around here; it hasn't been fixed up. So they took one take from one scene and another one, and yeah, it did, it didn't match up. I can't. I, I cannot. You know, it's like if you've got a spot on your jumper, you're going to notice a spot. You know, like the, the even if it's cashmere. The red dot, you know, the cashmere. So you're going to notice that I always notice that scene where the <laughs> bloody tie fix it up. If I was, you know what, if this was George Lucas's movie, he would have digitally altered that. Yeah. yeah, he would have digitally put a tie there. But no, they haven't done that. Anyway, we're at the end of the show, mate. Time for your wrap-up and your rating. Mate, I love it. 
uh, I can't believe the cast that that the cast and the script are equally as important to me here because it's just so appealing. The whole thing. I love the storyline. It had me going every minute. Um, I could definitely watch it again. And I, I don't say that about a lot of anything TV shows, let alone movies. So, you know, this is a, a, a hot spot for me. It's a nine easily, easier nine. Wow. Okay. I'm with you there. Or any movie we do on this show, you know, is going to be a nine or a 10 for me anyway. So I, there's no need for me to repeat myself every week. But you know what? Next week, we were initially down, and I'm just I'm springing this on Trevor right now. All right. Okay. I'm what are changing, you changing? I'm changing next week's movie. Next week's movie was going to be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but I thought we can't have two Jack Nicholson back, movies back, back yeah, to back. That's fair. That's so, fair. you know what? I've made a change. Next week, we're going to be watching The Martian, starring Matt Damon. Okay. Another one I have witnessed. I have Sword witnessed. Scene. You've seen yeah. bits of it. Okay. Yeah. But I'm going to ask you now. Here's your little quiz question. Here's your, your, your who wants to be a millionaire question. Who directed The Martian? Is it A, Steven Spielberg? B, Ridley Scott? C, Rob Reiner? Or D, George Clooney? Eddie, I'm gonna I'm gonna eliminate a couple straight away. I don't think it was Clooney or Reiner. I'm gonna lock in. Um, who'd you say second? Ridley Scott. I'm gonna lock in Ridley Scott. And he gets the money, ladies and gentlemen. Correct. Ridley Scott directed The Martian based on the Andy Weir book, which surprise, surprise, I read before the movie was made. And we are so we are covering that on the show next week. So if you want to listen in without having to take the last exit before the freeway, ladies and gentlemen, now's your chance to watch The Martian, starring Matt Damon. Great film. Bring it came out in uh, came on. out a few years ago, but a terrific film. To we're going to go through it just like we did a few good men today and find out some interesting facts about it. I've definitely got The Martian somewhere on 4K Blu-ray, but uh, I couldn't be bothered connecting a Blu-ray player, so I'm just going to. Search it up on Fetch, and uh, I've got the 85-inch Hisense in the lounge room. I actually think, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the family watch it. Yeah, I think it's family viewing. Yeah, I don't think yeah. there's too many swears in this one. There's no, no because too- my daughter wants to be an astronaut, right? So I'm like, let's do ah. The Martian. Like, it's well, a mate, fascinating. This might, yeah, this might scare her being it's an okay. astronaut. She's it's okay. It's pretty traumatic what this astronaut goes through. You've got to learn. <laughs> Life's not amazing, right? You might want to be a fireman after this movie, yeah. <laughs> Or a nurse she might want to be after watching. I look forward to it, my friend. Looking forward to it as well. Trevor, great to chat, mate, about a few good men. I look forward to discussing The Martian with you next week. Talk Talk to you then. then.